In a world of what are yous, welcome to the place where the answer is always human. My name is Natalie and you're listening to Some Kind of Brown, a podcast about mixed and multiracial life, current events, and ways to build the best life by a southern girl who's trying to figure it out for herself. Hello again, beautiful people. We are back with the last and final part of When They See Us. I'm not going to lie, this one is a very hard one for a good portion. It's going to take a lot, but I'm going to really try to not take out some of the anger I'm feeling from the beginning of this part out. This whole mini-series has been an emotional roller coaster, and I really think this last four, fourth part is its perfection because they did what I thought they were going to do. This part is about Cory until about the last 15 minutes, really. The journey he goes through, you can kind of take his story away from the others and it kind of accurately depicts everything that this case was. Cory more so than the others because he was 16, experienced so, so much pain, physically, psychologically, emotionally. We didn't get to see a lot of the prison experiences of the other four men, but they really delved into Corey's. I know in the beginning of the series when I started, I said that it's hard and if you can't watch it, don't watch it. And my stance has changed a little bit. This is coming from someone who sobbed her way through the first episode, which again, still, I'm still so sorry for that. And I don't know, it was my reaction. I'm not even gonna lie and say I just sobbed through the last of part four. I cried off and on the entire way through because ya girl is sensitive. This is such a hard story. I don't know how anyone can watch it and not at least feel something emotionally. Even though I said, wait till you're ready to watch it or don't watch it if you think it's gonna be hard for you, That still stands if it's going to hurt you psychologically. I don't want to put anyone in a position where they are psychologically harmed or have really negative thoughts because of this. You do really need to watch it when you're ready, but what I do want to say is that I hope you try. If you feel that you are psychologically, emotionally ready to take on something that you know is going to be heavy, you've listened to my previous episodes which have given some things away, you think you're prepared, please, please at least try to watch this mini-series. This mini-series got me thinking about so much and I guarantee you that I'm going to be working through some of these things for a while. How I approach things, how I look at the world, there's just a lot. So the episode opens with Corey's verdicts. Unlike the others, he was not named guilty for all of the charges, which I kind of find ironic because of all five, he was guilty for only two counts, but he went immediately to an adult prison and faced a little bit of a different experience because of it. So he was not guilty of attempted murder in the second degree, rape in the first degree, but guilty of assault in the first degree and sexual abuse in the first degree, and also riot in the first degree. In this first scene, we see something that is repeated multiple times, and it really, every time you see it, is just gut-wrenching. It's hard to watch a child than a young man be so 
lonely, feel so lost and abandoned and betrayed. And every time they have to drag him away, which they do in the courtroom, they drag him away as he cries for his mom. And in the subsequent times where he's dragged away, you just get this feeling that he gets these tastes, these little bits of happiness, and then they are just yanked away from him. It's a pattern through his experience. So he's sent at 16 to Rikers Island. Even I have heard of that prison and nothing good. My first thought was literally how is he supposed to survive this? If I hadn't seen in the news or seen in some of the pictures, when I looked for pictures to post that all five of them were together, and even knowing that he survived, I still had in the back of my mind, is he going to survive this? I honestly don't know how he did. So Corey has learned that the justice system cannot always be trusted, and he learns very quickly that police officers can be corrupt too. He's beaten and more physical injury is suggested and he goes to the nurse, tries to get the nurse to understand that he didn't do these things. He's innocent. He doesn't understand why these things are happening and asks for her help, but she can't help him. She's being watched. There's nothing she can do. But there's a guard who, when Corey first entered the prison, says, let me know if you can do something for me. And we find out he arranged for that beating to happen, or allowed that beating to happen, and repeated this proposition. I was afraid of what kind of proposition it would be, but it turned out to be for commissary items, and I really hope that was the extent of it in actuality. So Corey learns the only way he as a teenager is going to make it in this adult world is if he keeps his head down and bribes if he has to. As far as bribes and commissary items go, his mom doesn't have any money to give him. She cannot support him in the way that he needs to survive. We get the idea that she doesn't come very often. She says it's hard for her to come. He gives the guard who initially propositioned him to crunch candy bars. And it was kind of confusing to me because he had this whole threatening demeanor from the beginning. And when Corey gives him the candy, he softens a little bit and says that the next time he gets beaten, which there will be a next time, ask for solitary confinement and not the nurse because snitches go to the nurse. I honestly have no idea why he gave him this information. It ends up somewhat saving him, but I'm very confused about that guard and his motives in general. It really doesn't matter as far as the general scheme of the rest of things. He's just a little blip on the radar. Really just someone who gave Corey his first little taste of the corruption that happens in prison systems. Someone at Rikers tells him that he can be transferred and all he has to do is write a letter. And sometimes it could take a year, but this is the first time Corey has some kind of hope because he wants to be closer to his mother. He wants to be visited, obviously. Again, like I said, he feels very lonely. Something he says and comes up later, all I know is I'm in here and they not. That's something that brought him a lot of pain, something that goes through his head when he's distressed multiple times during this episode. Going into this, I thought Kevin was going to be the most vulnerable in the one I had to worry about, but it turned out it was going to be Corey. So after some solitary time in Rikers, he goes to Attica Correctional Facility and still gets assaulted 
He's beaten so badly, he's almost killed. At least that's what it appeared like to me. He couldn't breathe, he was wheezing, but this time he had an officer who cared. But unfortunately, he'd learned his lesson. Corey didn't want to go to the nurse, he asked for solitary. And I just want to take a minute to talk about solitary confinement and my opinions because it's important. Solitary confinement is utterly and completely torture. I do not believe that it should be legal in any form or fashion in any country, and especially not in our quote-unquote land of the free. Solitary confinement for human beings who are social animals, social beings, whatever you want to say, but taking a person away from social interaction, away from visual or any other kind of stimuli, has been proven time and time again to be extremely detrimental to a person's psyche. And once they experience this kind of isolation, a lot of people don't come back mentally. It is beyond disgusting. And the fact that solitary confinement for this teenager up through most of his imprisonment was a haven for him, as opposed to being beaten on the outside, I cannot articulate how upset that makes me. Even saying that I'm upset about it feels so strange because I'm not suffering that, but it, it's hard to not be emotional when you see or hear about someone going through solitary confinement or these kinds of situations in prison. Oftentimes, what happens in prison becomes a joke for people on the outside because our brains just don't want to comprehend the severity of what these men go through that or people just don't care but i really hope it's the former and not the latter and i think i'm not the only one who has these views about solitary confinement because ava DeVernay pulled no punches in depicting what it was like for Corey to be in solitary confinement. It's not very long before he starts hallucinating, and through these hallucinations, we find out a little more about his family life, and maybe some of the reasons that his mother cannot support him in the way that he needs. We find out first about his older brother, and then we quickly find out that this older brother is actually his older sister. His older sister is transgender. And I know that in this part, she's referred to by her dead name sometimes and misgendered other times. But as someone who is in a relationship with a trans woman, it was very difficult for me to watch this and it kind of blindsided me, to be honest. But I am going to refer to Corey's older sibling as his sister and call her by her name Mercy when she's brought up. So Corey hallucinates that he's seeing his older sister, kind of goes through his memories with her, and we find out that Corey's mother kicked his sister out for being trans. It's a very difficult scene to watch as she is dead named, and her mother says some very nasty things to her. But the important thing is that Marcy was a very important part of Corey's life, and he wanted to see her and asked to see her when his mom visited, even though the two of them were estranged. Because of Yusuf's mom and some of the regulations against communication between Corey and the other boys, he is completely isolated. His mom can't visit him very often. His sister is not able to visit him, and we're not really sure why, 
and these two are his only pillars of strength at the moment. So for the first time, Corey is called to the chaplain, at least the first time that we see. And he finds out that Marcy was murdered. It was around 1991, at the very least. As we all know, it wasn't a very good time to be trans, and I have no doubt that had something to do with it. But Corey understandably just has a breakdown. And while his first experiences in the prison system with officers was with a corrupt officer, I am so grateful that Officer Roberts was there for him in that moment. When Corey loses it, the officer just responds by holding him. One of the two pillars of support in Corey's life, the two people that he has in his life that he can depend on, his only connections to the outside world now that he's been separated from his best friend is gone. Officer Roberts kind of steps in and fills a little bit of that void. He sees that Corey is getting restless, that he is obviously not holding up well psychologically. They don't even have air conditioning in the solitary confinement units for a significant portion of time, so he's just literally in his cell, naked and hot, and nobody cares for some reason. But Officer Roberts brings him things to read, talks to him, visits with him, is this pillar of support for him. He gets him a job where he doesn't have to worry about other people attacking him. He has to clean the upper area, but you know... <laughs> I knew how this story was going to go. I knew this had to happen eventually. And what I'm talking about is that last piece about this case that I knew, that someone eventually was going to come forward and confess. I had no idea, no idea, that the person who actually perpetrated this crime encountered Corey. Am I going to say anything else about that in particular and just tell about this first account? It's honestly stupid. This guy is the only one in the room that Corey's cleaning. He turns the TV down, Corey asks him to turn it back up, and of course they get into a fight because tensions are high, prison is hard, and I don't know. I can't say what they go through, and I imagine they needed to let off some steam. If I were in prison, especially if I spent a lot of time in solitary confinement and I was finally able to hear music and have some kind of freedom, I'm sure I would be a little testy too. Unfortunately, this fight happens before his first parole hearing, and this also becomes a reoccurring pattern. His first two parole hearings, he's asked to admit his guilt, and just like the other men, he refuses. He did nothing wrong. After that first parole hearing, you really see him lose a little bit more of his innocence, and that's part of the reason why I say that Corey's experience is a metaphor for what this whole thing was. Every single thing he goes through chips a little bit away of his innocence, a little bit away of his perception of the world and how it should be, a little bit away from his stability emotionally and psychologically. We don't know how long he'd been in Attica before his mom visits, but we get the feeling that it's been a good number of years. I have really, really torn feelings about when his mom visits. Again, I don't want to judge her too harshly. It's her son. She says, she says that she's been saved and that God saved her after what happened with Marcy. I'm very grateful that she didn't deadname her and acknowledged her daughter after death. 
but I really got this feeling that she was trying to save her son and convert him rather than give him comfort. And all Cory wants, all he's yelling at her is he loves her and they're going to kill him. He's screaming at his mother that they're going to kill him and he loves her. And she's yelling back Christian platitudes, pray for those who offend you, don't hold grudges, those kinds of things. It's just very difficult for me to understand that part, to be honest. In any case, Corey wants to see his mother, understandably. And despite Officer Roberts and his, uh, he got him a Chia pet. And that's what he wanted when he got out because he said he, he saw in one of the magazines that the officer brought that Chia seeds were good for you, so he was going to have a Chia pet. And Officer Roberts got him delivered a a chia pet. They sneaked it into his solitary cell. I honestly wish that Corey had stayed there, but that's not the case. He applied for transfer so that maybe he could be closer to his mom, and I'm pretty sure he went even further away. At the new prison, an officer who obviously had strong opinions about what happened to the Central Park Five and whether they were guilty or innocent, prepared a welcoming party. A welcoming party that nearly killed Corey. He was viciously attacked and shanked, and once again offered solitary, which he takes. This torture he went through in this part when he was in solitary was rough to watch. He suffered so much in there, and I was worried that even though he gets out in the end, his sanity may not be intact. But he proved me wrong. I was as pleasantly surprised and absolutely amazed that he was able to hold his sanity together through all the interminable hours of solitary confinement. Corey maintained his innocence, he maintained his sanity, he maintained his determination to max out and get out and do something with himself. So ten years after that first transfer, he ends up in Auburn Correctional Facility, 266 miles from Harlem. This is 2001, 11 years after the initial conviction. There's a scene I'm a, little, I'm a little bit confused about, and it's never really talked about again, but Officer Roberts is in this new facility, maybe, and he tells Corey he's going to want to see this, turns the TV on, and you see what happened on 9-11, and then he walks away and you never see Officer Roberts again. I think that that officer was not there, and maybe there was a little break in reality there for him, but obviously he's recovering from the damage that was done in solitary confinement. And he continues on. We see a couple scenes. He looks like he's doing better. He's functioning around other inmates, although he's obviously wary of the people around him. I don't blame him. He's been through insane amounts of trauma. He focuses on his physical fitness and stays pretty much to himself. This next part is when things started to click in my brain. A man approaches Corey when they're out in the yard and he starts talking to Corey. And very quickly he realizes that Corey doesn't necessarily remember him. He jogs his memory. Corey says he remembers him from Attica. And the first thing Matthias Reyes says is apologize for attacking him in the TV room. Corey says it's okay. He forgives him. Matthias says thank you for that. He asks him if he's still maintaining his innocence and then tries to convert him. It's a very interesting interaction that they had, very odd. And my brain is clicking. 
putting these pieces together. I know the name Matthias. This is not the first time I've heard his name before. And sure enough, Matthias Reyes confesses to being the original assaulter in the jogger case, which is what they're calling it. I don't know if I'm more angry or grateful that he confessed because of Corey. But he said that they had someone suffering for his crime, and he deserved to pay for his sins. Matthias had converted to Christianity, and if that's what got him to confess, I'm not going to complain about it. So Matthias's confession causes uproar. Not only is the case given to the original district attorney, who was supposed to take the case and fought Fairstein for it. I'm not going to lie and say I was not feeling a little bit petty when the district attorney, Ryan, confronts the original investigator, confronts him on using the read technique, which he didn't even know what they were talking about, and that's the denying the teenagers food, water, or bathroom access for 42 hours in order to get or coerce a confession. We know that those kinds of things are not useful getting real confessions. By the time we got to Fairstein... I was a full-blown petty, okay? Like, full-blown, snapping, snatch her wig, snatch her life, don't like her. When I found out that she had been writing crime novels while the Central Park Five were in prison, my head about exploded. I did not have a rational reaction, or maybe it was a rational reaction. I just do not like this woman. I don't even know her. I don't like this woman. How can you send innocent teenagers to prison, maintaining their guilt to preserve your own reputation, your career writing crime novels? I, I just cannot imagine doing that with a clean conscience. But despite a 40-plus page commissioner's report, Fairstein says that they were going to submit, saying that Reyes was the sixth attacker despite the only DNA match being Reyes. And mm. Central Park Five were still exonerated. That was a good moment. And speaking of moments, we get those nice parallels of Corey being called into the chaplain's office. And the first thing he says when he gets in there is, who died? Bless his heart. The chaplain hands him the phone, and it's his mom telling him he's going to get out because someone confessed. I know I've quoted parts of the show that stood out, but honestly, in this next section, I want this to be seen. Namsa, who was one of the original activists working for the Central Park Five and bringing attention to their case with her now-deceased husband, who had been working throughout the years in support of these men, the speech she gives is something that I honestly think should be heard in this context. If you're able to watch these boys grow into men, do whatever they could to not only fight but survive, then I want you to be able to see their reactions as the speech is played. Just reading it to you here doesn't give it justice. It's a moment they fought and literally bled for and never thought would come. Seeing them together and freed filled me with so much fire and so much joy. Despite people actively working against them, trying to defeat them, they did more than survive. They couldn't get back what they lost, but they could go forward and live their lives and work towards new dreams. 
I can't help but think of that scene of Kevin sitting in the chair with this trumpet when we found out the boys were going to be convicted of the crimes and how that scene symbolized the end of their boyhood dreams, the end of their innocence, the end of the path they thought they were on. And now we have the scene of them holding hands and raising them high as survivors. I don't know. I will never forget seeing that. I will quote the last text that was on the screen. The men known as the Central Park Five spent between 6 and 14 years in prison across New York State. Their wrongful convictions were vacated in 2002 following the New York District Attorney's reinvestigation of the Central Park Jogger case. In 2014, a federal judge awarded the five men a settlement of $41 million, the largest in New York State history. If I was, if I hadn't already been in tears at this point, I probably would have burst into tears. As it was, I was basically hysterical for this last part. They give updates on the individual men, and as they give those updates, you get to see the real man who went through this. They were so strong, and seeing some of them smile, I almost don't have any words. I was just filled with pride, with admiration, maybe even a little bit of disbelief. I don't even know if I could go through what they went through, but they have become pillars of hope and beacons of light that not only give hope, but shine on and expose the racism, fear-mongering, and injustice that is still present today. Before I end this episode, I just want to thank Antron McRae, Raymond Santana Jr., Yusuf Salam, Kevin Richardson, and Corey Wise for not only sharing their stories with us through this miniseries, but for also what they are continuing to do to better the world today. Our country and the rest of the world is going through so much darkness, but I can't help but be grateful for these men and what they've become and how much they've shared with us. I'm especially grateful for Eva DuVernay for giving them this platform, for creating this mini-series and this priceless depiction of deceit, of hope, of endurance. I doubt any of them will ever hear this, but thank you. Alright guys, that is the end of When They See Us. I am both really sad and a little happy emotionally that we have made it through. I don't know how to describe this miniseries as anything other than perspective shifting, and I would really like to know what you thought of it as well. I'm not going to say too much on the end of this. I just want to remind you that we do have the giveaway going for signing up for the newsletter. I'm probably going to end up doing another Beyond the News for August because there's a lot going on and that will be available in the first week of September for patrons and the second week of September for all of you lovely people. That being said, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Some Kind of Brown. Thank you to Purple Planet for the use of their songs Love Life and Meltwater, and I will see you next week with some more Shades of Brown.